Well, it's a privilege uh, once again to turn our attention to the great gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 2, and we are continuing to climb the, the mountain to see Christ, to crown him as king. He is king, but Matthew's gospel crowns him as king. He tells us that this Jesus that we've given our lives to, our complete trust in, is king, is Lord. And we need to know that. You need to know that. I need to know that. We need to reassure ourselves with the Bible that he's king. He's in complete and perfect control. He's the authority in the moment. He is our king. We all need encouragement, and we're going to find it, I hope, and trust from his word uh, beginning in Matthew's gospel. I, uh, my, chapter 2. I don't know if you're like me, but... I'm kind of looking at our society, our city and culture in a way where it, it looks pretty nervous. Things are nervy right now. There is an interesting, curious atmosphere where people are filled with fear. If you need any sort of optics on how it's going, just go to Target or Walmart or Lowe's and walk around. Just look into people's eyes right now if they'll make eye contact with you. It is a smile at people, twinkle at people with your eyes as you have your mask on. Do whatever, but there is a nervous, fear-filled culture, and there, there are things to be afraid of. There are a lot of different things that we can be afraid of, not just the ones that are highlighted right now. People are concerned about what they might lose in an instant. I don't know that the concern is rising to the level of the afterlife, about meeting their maker one day, meeting the Lord. Am I going to heaven or hell? But there is a real concern about loss and the potential of it. We're all one phone call away from finding out we've lost a loved one. We've found out someone is ill or has a terminal condition. We could lose our jobs, we could lose our wealth, we could find out that life just has taken a quick turn. And so passages like 2 Timothy 1.7 come to mind as instructive, for God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Key phrase, not of fear. We don't have a spirit of fear as Christians. Christians are defined by being fearless, not fearful. The spirit of the Antichrist is to steal, kill, destroy, to lock us up in fear. And the spirit of God helps us be fearless, to be brave. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, what? Cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Now we're talking afterlife. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We, as Christians, have been perfected in Christ. We, we know the love of Christ. We're convinced that we're secure and we need to fight our fears. There's two authorities that we choose either to follow one or the other. God who's sovereign over everything, he's our king, or Satan, the God of this world, who's been given by God 
some latitude to influence this culture, this spiritual age. We either live in victory or we live in defeat. We're either following God or the God of this world, Christ or the Antichrist. We're either following the Prince of Peace or the Prince of the Power of the Air. God calls himself light. God is light. And then there is the counterfeit God called the Angel of Light. There's the truth and there's everything else that is false, that are lies. There's a battle being waged that we either find joy in as we know the truth or we believe lies and we despair. Freedom or bondage, we crown Jesus as king or Satan as king of our lives. So this is the thrust that I want to bring into Matthew 2. Matthew 2 is, is already saying this, and I want just to emphasize that there's a battle going on. As we go into Matthew 2, it's easy to say, well, I've heard this sermon last December. This is Christmas in July, right? Well, actually, as we unpack Matthew 2 and what's going on, it shows us that this is very relevant to what we're fighting through and working through personally right now. This is in the providence of God, just what God has ordered up for us to hear. This is speaking in terms of wise men, but really in the original language, it's the magi, it's the magicians. But you say, anytime you bring up the wise men, I start to hear in my mind the old Christmas carol, we, king, we three kings of Orient are. You weren't thinking about that, now you are. You know, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a fun thing to sing, but it, it's got a couple, you know, edits that we got to make in it quickly. First of all, the magi aren't kings. They're far eastern magicians, Gentiles, pagans who are becoming believers and worshipers. It's an amazing story. We're going to unpack who they are in a little bit. But second, we don't know that there were three of them just because there are three gifts that are presented later on in the chapter. Uh, The gifts could have represented the gifts from two magi. We know it's magi. I don't know what the singular is there, but it was at least two of them. Maybe it was 20 of them. I'm not sure, but these are Zoroastrian wizards that are converting to Christ and bringing king's gifts to him. But just because they're not kings, be not mistaken that this text is not about kings. This text is full, chocked full with king language, and it's about two kings. We're not talking about three kings. We're talking about two kings. We're talking about Jesus, who is king, and we're talking about Herod, who is a king. We're talking about Jesus, who is God, and Herod, who represents Antichrist or Satan himself. Look at the text. I'm just going to show you words that pop off the page in verses 1 to through 6 about this dynamic of kings. You have Jesus, born in Bethlehem, and opposite of Jesus is Herod, the king. In verse 2, The wise men or the magi are looking for the king of the Jews. And that's speaking of Jesus the king, the one who owns the star that they followed, his star. See that in verse 2. Then you have verse 3, Herod the king hears this. You have one king versus another king. And then it goes on 
where in verse 4, Herod is inquiring about the Christ, which is the word Messiah, which means the anointed one, which is the language of the anointing of a king, like King David. Jesus is the anointed king. And then later, you have the prophecy of Micah 5.2 and uh, 2 Samuel 5.2, which is speaking of Jesus as a ruler. He is the king. And so you have king versus king. You have God versus Satan. You have Christ versus Antichrist. You have murderer versus savior, life giver. You have Herod who is going to be shown as killing children versus a Jesus Christ who welcomes the children. You have this dynamic going on. Later, John the Baptist will say, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king has come. So we're discovering that we're brought to a crossroads with how we will react to this king. Two roads, two options. You have a wide road, a narrow road. You have good versus evil, true versus false, fear versus faith. That's what we're talking about. Paranoia versus trust. Choose a king. This choice creates something, a dynamic. And these three dynamics are laid out in our text before us. It's three reactions to Jesus and Jesus versus Herod. Anytime you bring Jesus up, three things are going to happen. One, people hate Jesus. You talk about the true Jesus, they hate Jesus. There's a lot of hatred out there. Well, you bring Jesus up, they hate Jesus. He brings accountability, he brings presence, he talks about the afterlife, he divides the world between those who are following him or not. Jesus provokes hate. Second, there is a second, even more subtle dangerous reaction, and that is indifference. You have hate, and then you have indifference. People who say, well, I know the truth, but I don't care. It has not really meant anything to me. I've been going to church a long time. I've heard the truth. I can give the Bible answers, but I am indifferent to Jesus. And then thirdly, uh, there is worship. There's love, wonder, and praise homage given to the true Christ. So you have hate, indifference, and worship. And that's what we'll find in our text. It kind of narrates the story for us. Well, with that in mind, I want to just open up our text a little bit. Look, it says, verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Let's stop there. Bethlehem is a small little town that is... um, Five miles south of Jerusalem. It's on the map in a Jewish-minded person, a biblical-minded person. They would have known that Rachel was buried there from the Old Testament, Rachel. And then they would also have known that King David was born there. And everything is tying to the line of Jesus Christ, Jesus being proven through the genealogical record that we've looked at, verses 1 through 17, proving that Jesus comes from the line of the kings. Well, that all centers in back to Bethlehem where David comes from, and and David, the son of Jesse, was born there. So everything is targeting back to Bethlehem of Judea. And it says in the days of Herod. Now I want to stop there and talk about Herod for a minute, maybe more than a minute. It's important for you to understand who Herod was because his 
influence and leadership was influencing everything in Jerusalem during this time. Verse 3 says he was troubled. He was troubled to hear about Jesus. He was, he was nervy. He was more than that. He was falling apart. He was a disturbed man filled with paranoia and influencing all of Jerusalem. He's called Herod the, Dr- the Great because he had a really good start politically. He, he's in the line of, uh, he, he's the first of several Herods that follow him, even um, through a family um, dynamic, and you'll, you'll see that as the gospel plays out. But he was initially given his power seat from all the way back from Julius Caesar, who appointed his father, Antipater. All of this is B.C. The, these are... Um, decades before the coming of Christ that Julius Caesar was ruling and Rome was ruling and Antipater was ruling and then Antipater appoints his son Herod to a lower level to take an enforcing role as a prefect and he is doing military dynamic under his dad in the Jerusalem region region. At that time, you have Roman rule, and all of this is about 40 years before the time of Christ, and he's staving off the, um, the threat from the east. Uh, just think in terms of, of Baghdad and the Middle East threat that's coming on Jerusalem. Well, he's in charge of Roman authority, and every threat has always come from the east, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, these um, Babylonian threats of, of you know, generations before that, that that's a threat that he's staving off and he's also quelling guerrilla warfare dynamics that the Jews are putting together with their tactics to protect themselves so he's making peace he's also keeping peace he's someone that as a government authority in the name of Rome was not loved by the Jews the Herods were not loved by the Jewish people they were not trusted he was an Edomite, uh, which means he was not a pure Jew. Uh, You have Jacob and Esau. You remember Esau is the progenitor of the Edomites. But he still wielded power well for about three decades. And this is, again, um, you know, 30 plus years before the coming of Christ. Christ came probably in 4 or 3 BC officially, pushing up to anadonomy, which speaks of uh, the Lord. And, and if you look at it on a graphic or a timeline, that's the way scholars will lay it out. But you have this Herod the Great who died probably one or two years after the birth of Christ, but his rule is leading up to that time. And he had a good start like a lot of people. He was a great builder. He reconstructed the temple after it had been knocked over, destroyed when the Israelites went into exile, when they came back. You have Ezra and Nehemiah in the building project. Well, decades before the coming of Christ, Herod had taken up that building project and made the temple beautiful. He created tax relief 25 years um, B.C. when there was a famine in the land. He He was known as melting down plates of gold from his own possession to feed the people corn. And so that was the that was the soundbite under his name. So he's a great builder. He built theaters, arenas, auditoriums. He did all these things, things, but he had a problem as he got older. Into his 70s, he had a terrible flaw that was building in his life, and that was he was paranoid. He was insanely suspicious of people wanting to usurp his authority. 
And so with this paranoia, he became what was known as a murderous old man. That was his tagline. And he married 10 different women. And one of these women um, he married was a Jewish heiress uh, who had political clout because he was trying to build inroads with the Jewish people and build love and loyalty there, but it didn't work. Um, Her name was Nami, and she uh, had a brother that he suspected, um, who was a high priest, Aristobulus, who suspected was trying to take over power, and so he drowned him, went to his funeral, faked tears at the funeral, and then began to get suspicious of his wife and killed her and then assassinated uh, his oldest son, Antipater, named for his grandfather, also killed his mother-in-law. We'll pause there for a minute. But anyway, he did horrible things. He assassinated two other sons. Augustus, the Roman emperor, said, quote, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. When he was sick um, and and dying, he knew that nobody really loved him and nobody was going to cry for him. And he was so warped and, and, and murderous that he gathered together a bunch of dignitaries and citizens of Jerusalem, arrested them, and put a, a policy on them that the day that Herod would die, they would be executed so people would cry in Jerusalem over anyone. And he wanted tears shed on the day of his death. This is Satan incarnate. This is a killer. This is a murderer. This is someone who killed half the Sanhedrin, 300 court officials. He executed his wife, his mother-in-law, and notable men in Jerusalem. And you know that he created the infanticide, which reflects the um, death killing and murder that Pharaoh had done so many um, generations before to the Israelites. And now this is a redoing of that. Every child in the Bethlehem and and larger, uh, greater region, two years and older, All these little boys to be killed and slaughtered so that he could try to hunt down and snuff out the Lord Jesus. Anyone who is raising themselves up as a God, a power monger, is anti-Christ. And this was one who was a power monger and anti-Christ, ruthless, insane murderer on the mission to snuff out Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus posed a threat to him in his pride. Well, let's dive into the story more. Um, You have the wise men. It says, Herod, and then you have behold, verse 1, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who are the wise men? Well, the wise men, it's important to understand who they are because of the stereotypes we have with the nativity scenes. And there's three of them, and, and we might not get the full picture of how austere and formidable these wise men that were coming out of the Far East were, and how Herod would have perceived them, and how the city would have perceived them. They were coming 500 miles away in a caravan. Perhaps you think maybe 20 wise men, who knows, or 20 magi, the Zoroastrian astrologers that would have been um, regaled in, in long robes and pointy hats and, and wizard-like uh, people. Think of Simon Magus in the New Testament, Simon the sorcerer of Acts 8. These are wise men who would have had a eerie 
presence. They represented, I mean, coming from, think of Baghdad or the former Babylonian area from the Babylonian Empire, where Herod had fought off who were called the Parthesian people or people who were of Persian persuasion. He had fought them off militarily. So now these Zoroastrian stargazing astrologers are coming from them as leadership, probably with a small army around them. During a time when the Roman army had been dispersed to collect a a census, right, on the region, you have this small army that's coming around and The text calls them the wise men, but they are magi, which is where we get the word magic. When you think of these people, maybe we remember when Moses was confronting Pharaoh. How in Exodus, I think chapter 7, you had the, um, the magicians were called in. You know, people who are like wise men to be counterfeiting the power of God in the face of God. You have this contrast. And then in the days of Daniel, you have wise men as Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter five and other places talk about. They're they're part of this lineup of people who are supposed to inform the leader as to the direction that their gods are leading. These are the astrologers, stargazers. These are people who are using math. They're using science. They're using philosophy. They're the secularists who are trying to combine all of their mental and spiritual and scientific powers to give a word from the gods. That's who magi were. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar who who was leader of Babylon, who was in charge of the Babylonian captivity, who had scooped up men like Daniel and Anariah, Hazariah, and Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And Daniel, who was renamed Belteshazzar, and they were the young men, the college students who were coming out of the professorship of the Magi and of this culture, where they were trying to indoctrinate them, eat the king's meat, believe our doctrines, believe our thinking, trust science, trust our philosophy, trust um, astrology, trust astronomy, to know the direction of life and how things are going. And these young boys, young men, refused to eat the king's meat. They refused to drink the proverbial Kool-Aid, and they were taking a stand for the true God at risk of their own lives. And Daniel doing that was proven early and was ushered into the king's court to provide an interpretation of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was so freaked out and and turning upside down, turning backflips in his mind because he had had a dream that he knew was very significant and was from another realm and had deep implications for him. And he was so freaked out because he couldn't remember the dream and he therefore couldn't interpret the dream or even make a stab at it. And so he called all the magi in and all the satraps and all the soothsayers and all the, you know, religious people in and none of them could say, we know what the dream is. And at points, I was reading the Daniel narrative, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, you're stalling. You're, you're, you're trying to consult with people to stall and I'm going to kill all of you for this. I'm going to kill you because you don't know what I dreamed. I mean, talk about bad parenting, right? You don't know what I dreamed, so you can't tell me what, you know, God's will is for my life. That's, that's what he was saying. And so enter in Daniel. Daniel goes to his 
three brothers in the Lord and says, pray for me, pray that I can figure this out. And God gives him a vision, tells him the dream and tells him the answer. And because he's able to interpret the dream, there is a, a foundation of the true God that's being laid right in the court of Babylon. Think of Daniel, Ananias, Hazariah, and Mishael as um, missionaries. Just suddenly they're put on the mission field to stand for God. Daniel was giving, I, Daniel 2, he's talking about the statue that was in the dream and you know the head gets knocked off and this happens and this version and all of that is talking about kingdoms that God's gonna make rise and fall. And Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. And so then his son in Daniel 5 um, Belshazzar throws a big feast and uses all of the temple plates and forks and spoons and furniture in that. And suddenly a hand comes into the room that's the hand of God, the finger of God writing things on the wall. And, and Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, is called in again. And he interprets that and basically says that uh, the leader, the ruler, Belshazzar, has done wrong and he's going to die for it. So again, God is, his witness is there in Babylon. And it just ties together. Who are the Magi? Where are they coming from? How could they know anything about God? Well, Daniel had been there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been there. Their witness was there. They were willing to go to the fiery furnace. Uh, God was, God's word was present somehow powerfully. You have exiles who were there, who stayed there, who didn't return home, who intermarried. So you have a Christian foundation. Imagine that in a foreign land of paganism and wizardry and black magic. You have a witness for God. And so these magi connected dots somehow and were figuring out that that there was a true Messiah who had come. It's amazing. There are passages, even um, ones that are found in numbers that prove that, that, that the star meant something to them. Numbers 24, 17 is where you have, uh, it's Balaam's prophecy. Balaam was the false teacher under King Balak, but ultimately God was speaking through um, Balaam as a judgment on Israel, redirecting. But Numbers twenty four seventeen, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This is, these are verses that, that somehow the Magi are connecting to God because a supernatural star had shown up. John Milton called these wise men or Magi star-led wizards who were coming 500 miles and showing up. And look, they didn't go right to Herod. If you go back to the text, they're going around town They're from the east. They came to Jerusalem. They would have been threatening as a little army. They're coming from Baghdad. Who are these foreigners that are showing up? People that have been part of a threat nation to Herod in the past. And so verse 2, they're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're not threatening anybody, but they are bold in why they are there. They're going around town, house to house, trying to find Jesus. The star had brought them 
just that far. They said, for we saw his star, that's the star of Messiah, when it rose and have come to worship him. Their response was not hatred. Their response was not indifference. Their response was, we want to find Jesus. We're connecting scriptural dots. The true God of Israel, that witness that we heard about in Babylon, is finding its origin here, and we want to know what's going on. What is the star? Well, a lot of Christian folks and scholars have said, well, it was a comet, or they've tried to explain it as Jupiter and Saturn aligning and and being nested in the stars of Pisces, because Pisces is the constellation of the fish, and the fish is a sign of Christianity. That's all bogus and weird. Basically, this is a star that moves. So what that means is this is star-like It moves around like the Shekinah cloud moved and and led the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. The Shekinah glory that shone over the shepherds where you have the heavenly host and the angels saying glory to God in the highest. This is that light. This is that Shekinah. And this Shekinah has, has, glory has led these magi to this place in a general way where they are inquiring about the Lord boldly at risk of their own safety. They're saying, where is this Messiah? Because we followed his star. We have come to not worship you, Herod, but we've come to worship this king. So it gives us a little bit of a a background story to know what's going on. What was Herod's response, by the way, when he hears about this? Because word is getting around town and it's trickling up. Well, when it came upstream to Herod, he was troubled. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. People get troubled when they hear about Jesus. This was a perverted man. This was a warped, paranoid man who when confronted with, there is a baby that has been born. Confronted by this reality, he's troubled. And he's troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Are they afraid of the wise men? No. Are they afraid that this little wise men cohort is going to come after them? No. They're just saying, where's Jesus? We want to worship him. They're afraid of what Herod's going to do in light of the Magi wanting to worship Jesus. They're afraid that Herod's paranoia is going to put him on a killing spree. That's why they're troubled. They're nervous. They're nervy. What is going to happen? What phone call am I going to receive? What are the implications of this right now? What is God doing? Is God in control at all? This is the Holy Land. Right? And there's all the wise men are saying is, Where's Jesus? And that's throwing everything into upheaval because the security of Herod is gone. He's paranoid. He's old. He's going to kill us all or kill our children. And ultimately, he did kill their children. They had right to be afraid, they were troubled. The wise men, by contrast, are operating in spiritual diligence, asking, Where is he? Where is he? We want to. Worship. We want to proskuneo. We want to bow down, pay homage to, kiss towards. They were wise for that. J.C. Ryle said, We have no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. True servants of God are in places that we should not even expect to find them. 
The Lord Jesus has many hidden ones like the wise men. It's amazing. It's always the surprise who really comes to faith in Christ, who's really going for it, and then who's troubled, who's following God, Jesus as king, who's following the God of this world, Satan, Antichrist as king. That's, what it, that's the dividing line. Where are you in light of your fears? Are you operating in faith or fear? This is the litmus test of where we are or are not spiritually. Uh, Herod's heart hardens. Jerusalem is stirred. And this leads us to just touch into the second point, which is a reaction of indifference. We have hatred, now indifference. Indifference is the indictment on the church. Look at verse 4. It says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Hey, I need to know where he's going to be born. Herod's like, you guys know the Bible. I know I'm the king of the Jews, but I don't need to know the Bible. You guys know the Bible. I mean, it's just clear. Herod doesn't know the scripture. He summons chief priests and scribes who wouldn't typically be paired together. You have chief priests who are the religious aristocracy. They're the ex-high priests who still have the robes and have the outfit, and they're tenured in their priesthood, so they're gathering in. And then you have the scribes who are the nerds in the back room copying the Bible over and over again, you know, just for, for precision's sake. And so they're brought together, and they're put on jeopardy, and it's, you know, Alex who's saying, okay, you want the category of where is Jesus born? Where is he to be born for 100? And they go, Micah 5-2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Doesn't everybody know this? And by the way, let's connect it to 2 Samuel 5.2, which is the end of verse 6. It says, beginning Micah 5.2, um, you know, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it was written by the prophet, this is Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And then they elide that or put that together with 2 Samuel 5.2 to really tighten this down to say, we don't just know where he's going to be born. We know the line that he's going to come from. We know the lineage. We know the heritage. We know the history. We know he's the second David. We got it nailed. For, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Oh, this Messiah is going to be awesome. He's a ruler. He's a shepherd. He's coming from Bethlehem that's five miles away. And there's been this Shekinah cloud and there's wise men saying, where's Jesus? And he's right there. They came 500 miles, but eh, I don't think I'm going to go five miles down there to check it out. I got my Bible knowledge. I'm going to go back and do some temple worship stuff and shine some furniture I got some homework to do theologically. I'm a, I'm a scribe. I got to rewrite the Bible a few times. But I'm not going to go worship Jesus who's fulfilling these prophecies. That's the spirit of indifference. But that's as, which is more dangerous, hatred or indifference? I would put them on par. I mean, we're talking about unbelief. Indifference is scary though, right? Because it's like you know the truth. You have knowledge, but not knowledge that leads you to the truth. Never able, you know, First Timothy, never able to arrive at the truth. You have knowledge, but it's puffed you up. It's hardened you up. You, you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus personally. You know a lot about him, but you don't know him. You have to know Jesus to be invited into his kingdom, to be part of the kingdom. It's knowing him. You're either 
when you're lost in hatred or indifference, you're either being an extrovert or an introvert. You're either blowing up or you're holing up. You're either out there or you're turtling and you're going in the turtle, tortoise shell and you're going in there. You're not, you're not putting yourself out there in faith saying, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? I'm talking Jesus up. I'm out loud about Jesus because I need to worship Jesus. And you need to worship Jesus. Those are the wise men. Those are the magi. Those are the ones who are the wizards. Those are the ones who are coming from the dark regions of the world who are saying, Jesus is here. I've connected numbers. I'm connected with the Shekinah cloud. They're the steady ones. Indifference is not okay. Conspiracy to kill Jesus is not okay. Tinfoil hat conspiracy. Herod is not okay. He says, you guys go. And I'll catch up. That's where we're going to go next week. We're going to finish this off with the Magi who worship the Lord. And look at the significance of each of their gifts that they brought to crown him as king. Spiritual indifference is not okay. We're all fools who've been made wise. We're all blind men and women who've been made to see. We see the Lord Jesus. Let's talk about him openly.